From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jenny Doring. And I'm Jamie Kaiser. A tanker makes the first winter trip north of Russia without an icebreaker, marking a new era of polar shipping and potential ecological disaster. I don't think that we are prepared for the kinds of accidents that could happen with respect to navigation, satellites, communication, let alone a spill response. All of these are threats to a very, very fragile environment. Also, Nantucket's shores are fast eroding as Atlantic waves batter the coast. There's so much energy at the coast. If you think of a cubic meter of seawater, it weighs about one metric ton. So there's a huge amount of mass in water. Now you think on the North Atlantic coast, a wave will hit a beach every six seconds on average, and it's relentless. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jamie Kaiser. And I'm Jenny Doring. We're in for Steve Kerwood. In December 2017, a tanker made history by sailing from South Korea to northern Russia, where it took on a cargo of liquefied natural gas that it then delivered to France. What made it revolutionary was that a tanker forged a path across the top of Siberia without an icebreaker in winter. It's a telling sign of just how much sea ice we've lost at the top of the world. To look at what this breakthrough means, we turn now to Nancy Kinner, who directs the Coastal Response Research Center and the Center for Spills in the Environment at the University of New Hampshire in Durham. Nancy, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, Nancy, how much of a revolution is this voyage? It's really a game changer in that the Russian government, in partnership with China, is trying to make a pathway for liquefied natural gas to get from the Yamal Peninsula, which is kind of midway along the Russian Arctic coast, to China. And to be able to do that without the escort of an icebreaker and with ice present is really a game changer. So what are some of the things that made it possible for this cargo ship without an icebreaker to go all the way across the top of Siberia in the dead of winter? Well, there is a company in South Korea that is a very large shipbuilder, and they basically built this ship to be able to go either in forward or reverse, breaking the ice. It's able to break ice up to two meters thick. And so that is really something, especially because it's not just an icebreaker, it's a tanker. We know that from year to year, there's been a decrease in the sea ice in the Arctic. You know, to what extent was that part of this too? Well, the fact that the ice is decreasing is a major player in this. So we're getting periods of time where the waters are uh, either with very, very broken up ice so that a ship can pass through or no ice. We have had really relatively low amounts of ice for a good portion of January this year. What used to happen for ships? I I think they used to have to go all the way south through the Suez Canal, right? How much shorter is this passage? So this passage is about 14,000 kilometers, and that is about 40% shorter than the traditional route through the Suez. So this can save a lot of time and money. So this tanker was carrying liquefied natural gas. um, And of course, Russia is a big exporter of oil as well. 
So what do you see as the implications of increased fuel shipping in the Arctic? One of the things that we have to realize is that the Arctic has very few navigational aids. There isn't a lot of satellite coverage up there. The bathymetry, what we know about the bottom, well, if you don't know the depth of the water or where there might be a little mountain rising up from the bottom, boy, you could have an accident pretty easily. The other thing is that if ships get into trouble up in the Arctic, there are not a lot of other ships around to help out. The final problem is that if you do have an accident, a spill of any sort, the equipment isn't there to help clean it up. Even if you had the equipment, it's hard to get people up there. The resources are very, very fragile in the Arctic. The biota are stressed anyway because of climate change, and this puts a further stress on them to have a contaminant in the water. How do spills act differently in some place fairly warm, like the Gulf, versus someplace really cold in the Arctic? It's a ship disaster. There isn't a difference in necessarily how the material gets in the water. However, once the material gets into the water, that's where the differences lie in the Arctic. If the ship has been going through breaking up ice and all of a sudden there's a large amount of material released, then it can get trapped under the ice. And if the ship stops moving, then the ice is going to freeze around the ship. And if material is leaking out below the waterline, you now have it trapped under the ice. If it's um, broken up ice, then you've got to try to clean it up. In the world of ice, there's a whole ecosystem that lives at the bottom of the ice because organisms grow there, microorganisms grow there, and then other organisms come feed on those microorganisms, and it's a whole food chain built around that. Gosh, that really sounds like an ecological disaster. Um, so in the event of gas spilling, what could that do as opposed to oil? If it's released out of the bottom or the side of the ship, because it's colder, uh, the gas is not going to just be as volatile as we would think in a warmer environment. So it's cold in the ship, it's liquefied, and then as it's released, it's released into a cold environment. So it can remain a little bit more as a liquid. Some of it will dissolve into the water, the compounds, but it can also get trapped. And some of it will obviously go up into the air if the ice is broken up. So what are the possible geopolitical effects of an increase in Arctic ship traffic? The Arctic Ocean is a very finite space. The UN uh, has a law of the sea that was created. Almost every nation has signed on to it. The U.S. has not. And as part of the law of the sea, there are very, very strict regulations about how countries establish their, let's think of it as dominion, what are their waters? When countries are now looking at where their boundaries are with respect to the water, they are really overlapping. The U.S. and Canada overlap. Russia overlaps. These waters are extremely contested. So, all of this has really big implications for who controls the waters that these ships are going to go through. And of course, what, who controls the resources that are under the seabed? 
And we know that there's a lot of gas, a lot of oil, potentially under the Arctic Ocean. And so who owns that seabed is very, very important with respect to natural resources. So all of this is a really contested, and a lot of it is supposed to be settled with the law of the sea. And of course, the U.S. is not a signatory, so we're kind of in a very strange space on that one. So, Nancy, how worried are you about this increase in Arctic ship traffic? For the long term, I think I'm quite worried because I don't think that we are prepared for the kinds of uh, accidents that could happen. And I mean prepared with respect to navigation, with respect to bathymetry, uh, all of these kinds of things, satellites, communication, let alone uh, spill response. So all of these are threats to a very, very fragile environment, not only an ecosystem, but also to the peoples who live in those areas. A lot of them are indigenous peoples whose livelihoods depend on subsistence from the sea. So I'm more we need to get our act together here. Nancy Kinner directs the Coastal Response Research Center and the Center for Spills in the Environment. Thank you, Nancy. It's been a pleasure talking to you. We'll take a trip beyond the headlines now with Peter Dykstra of dailyclimate.org and Environmental Health News, that's ehn.org. He spoke from Atlanta, Georgia, with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Doing well, Helen. How about you? Pretty good. What have you got for us? Well, we're going to talk about fatbergs. It's, uh, in this case, a different kind of London fog. Fog means fats, oils, and grease, and that's something that sewage workers fear. The fatberg is something that was scraped and blown with high-pressure water hoses off the inside of London sewer tunnels. There was a piece 130 tons, congealed fat, poured in from household drains and poured in from restaurants and other sources, combined with other things like uh, hand wipes, that was beginning to clog pipes. And it's become a huge problem, but also a museum exhibit. Really? People want to see this thing? In the Museum of London, there's now a chunk of the Fatberg on display. It's there till July 1st. It's drawing big crowds and, and I guess as far as Fatbergs go, rave reviews. Well, I can't imagine why anyone would want to see it, but I suppose we do need to face what we do to the sewers. Uh, that's right, and it's not just in London. They found them in Australia. There was one in Baltimore this past year that actually caused a sewage spill when it completely clogged a pipe. Think of it as a clogged artery in a human being. Uh, it works that way. It costs money. It causes sewage spills, and uh, it's just kind of gross. So it's just obviously a, a good reminder to us not to put those fats down the drain. Right. And it is a consumer thing, too, because even though some of the biggest culprits are institutions or restaurants, we contribute when we put fats, oils and grease in our own drains and into our own sewer systems, not only harming the big sewer system, it can also cause problems with your own pipes in your own home. And that costs money. <laughs> well, that's enough about the fatberg. What else have you got? Lisa Murkowski, the Alaska senator who has been gung-ho on oil, has decided that she's a little bit gung-ho on something else. She delivered a speech in Washington last week in which she said her fellow Republicans have to pay attention to climate change. And obviously, Alaska is ground zero for the impacts of climate change. Uh, Senator Murkowski wants to keep drilling, though. She wants to have her oil cake and eat it, too. Yes, it doesn't seem to fit together that uh, you've got all this melting permafrost in Alaska 
and uh, disappearing villages and uh, she wants to actually continue promoting drilling or in fact open up Anwar to drilling. It's a bit of a contradiction and not the first one from a famous Alaska politician. About a decade ago, there was an Alaska governor who set up a climate change sub-cabinet and that governor was Sarah Palin, who went on to national fame and went on to reality TV and then went on to complete climate denial. So what happened to her climate sub-cabinet? It sank into the melting permafrost. It never met. It's never been heard from again. But at least she had that idea before changing her idea. <laughs> so what history lesson do you have for us today? We're going to wish a happy birthday to plutonium. Back in 1941, Glenn Seaborg and a team of chemists and scientists at the University of California, Berkeley, developed the element plutonium. They did so in a university building in an urban campus in a third floor attic lab in the middle of a city. Yeah, I hadn't known about Glenn Seaborg until I read about him. He's a really big deal in, in nuclear physics. Uh, right. He later shared a Nobel Prize in chemistry and uh, was a big part of the Manhattan Project once he had developed plutonium. Uh, the U.S. was on its way to developing uh, eventually the plutonium bomb that was uh, a key part of the arms race. Thanks, Peter. Peter Dykstra is with ehn.org, environmentalhealthnews.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. OK, Helen. Thanks a lot. Peter Dykstra with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jenny Doring. And I'm Jamie Kaiser. We're in for Steve Kerwood. Temperatures are rising twice as fast in the Arctic as the world average, and that means that permafrost, the once permanently frozen soil of high latitudes, is becoming, well, less permanent. As it melts, greenhouse gases like methane and carbon dioxide escape, adding to the warming. And now, new research shows huge reserves of toxic mercury are also trapped in Arctic permafrost, and they're at risk of escaping too. Paul Schuster is a hydrologist from the United States Geological Survey and lead researcher on the study. Paul, welcome to Living on Earth. Oh, thank you for having me. Of all the things that you could have studied about permafrost, why did you choose to study mercury? Mercury is a ubiquitous pollutant throughout the globe. And uh, it's, it's somewhat different than the other pollutants we're used to hearing about in the news. Mercury is a different beast in many ways. And the mercury is always moving. It's always cycling. It's been doing it, though, on a geologic timescale. And that's okay because the Earth can adapt at, at a geologic timescale. But we are affecting that geologic timescale right now. We are, first of all, we're introducing much more mercury into the atmosphere. And so that's one part of the equation. The other part is that we are warming the Earth, too. And as the Earth warms, that energy falls the permafrost. Now, that has happened before in the past as natural processes with ice ages and interglacials and glacials. But they were on scales of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years. The permafrost that's falling right now, all the models predict that by the year 2100, 30 to 99 percent 
of our permafrost will be thawed. And we think that that's going to be a problem for ecosystems because baseline mercury is going to increase so fast that things can't adapt to it. So where did you get your data about mercury and the permafrost? We cored the permafrost. We had uh, coring devices that that took cores up to about a meter in length and about four centimeters in diameter. And we pulled those cores out and we kept them frozen. We brought them back to our laboratory and then we sliced them up into little slices, about one and a half centimeters thick. And each one of those slices we processed very carefully because mercury is also very easy to contaminate. And so how much mercury did you find? Well, when you add it all up, it was a lot more than we thought it would be. We added up all our cores, and the cores we took were representative of of many diverse depositional environments, all in the Northern Hemisphere. So we had a representative data set that we could upscale to the rest of the North. And bottom line was we added it all up. The pool of mercury in permafrost is about 793 gigagrams. So 793 gigagrams is 23 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Wow. So this is a lot of mercury. How did all this mercury get trapped there in the first place? It's a natural process, believe it or not. Part of the global cycle is atmosphere, atmospheric deposition. And it gets there by natural processes, at least before Industrial Revolution. Most of it was volcanic or geologic in origin. And that mercury gets a continuous deposition. So it just builds and builds over the millennium since the last ice age. It's my understanding that mercury is non-reactive and not that dangerous unless ingested directly. But what's the danger of mercury once it gets into the food web? Right, right. What we we need to understand is what was, is called methylation. When the mercury gets into the soil as elemental form, there is bacteria in the soil. They have a process by which they reduce sulfur and carbon to make it take energy. And, and in turn, there's a byproduct. If mercury is present in that during that metabolizing process, mercury will get a CH3 molecule attached to it. And that's called methylmercury. And that form of mercury can enter living tissue, and it does. And as it enters living tissue and goes up the food chain, it bioaccumulates and biomagnifies. And what you have at the lower end of the food chain is where mercury levels are the lowest and typically not harmful in, in their concentrations. But as methylmercury moves up the food chain, it gets more and more concentrated and it becomes toxic. And the higher forms of life in the food webs, like uh, the fish, the birds, and us, can get toxicity if it gets too high. Um, and so does your team have any idea about how much mercury you expect to be released and when? No, we don't. And that is the next step. Okay. And we're actively doing that right now. We need much more data, basically. And, you know, we hear scientists say that all the time, but in this case, it's really true. <laughs> we had 13 cores. And during the review process, we were criticized heavily that those 13 cores could not adequately represent the rest of the Northern Hemisphere. So what do we need to do? We need to go out and get more cores from many different parts of the, of the Northern Hemisphere and add that to our data set to expand it. Paul Schuster is a hydrologist with the U.S. Geological Survey and lead author of this study. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time today. 
Thank you for having me, and it was a pleasure to speak with you. off the coast of New England is an island that the National Park Service calls the finest surviving architectural and environmental example of a late 18th and early 19th century New England seaport town. Back then, Nantucket grew rich on the spoils of the whaling industry. And even after petroleum put that industry out of business, much of the island's elegant wharfside architecture remained. Today, Nantucket is a popular summer colony, and the historic homes have been joined by newer but still tasteful construction, in places no one would have built back in the whaling days. At the east end of the island is Syasconset. Locals call it simply Sconset. Its multi-million dollar cottages have stunning views directly facing the Great Atlantic, where it comes ashore in its full ferocity. So the very bluff on which they are built, and the beaches below, are under assault, says Mark Borelli, a coastal geologist at UMass Boston. There's so much energy at the coast. If you think of a cubic meter of seawater, it weighs about one metric ton. So there's a huge amount of mass in water. Now you think on the North Atlantic coast, a wave will hit a beach every six seconds on average, and it's relentless. Standing on the beach, facing the open ocean on the Nantucket shore, I could feel this energy as a wave curled over and crashed down. And these powerful waves are slowly eating away at the island. Nantucket and parts are getting smaller. For the most part, yeah, you're losing, you're losing land on Nantucket. It's not just the energy at the coast that's to blame. Rising seas caused by climate change and the island's geology are also part of the problem. We're very, very vulnerable here. We're not the rocky coast of Canada or Maine or Oregon. We're sand. Peter Brace is a naturalist. At Sconset, that sand holds up dozens of summer homes. Big, sturdy cottages covered in gray cedar shingles that keep out the fierce storms that pummel Nantucket. But Josh Posner, the president of the Sconset Beach Preservation Fund, says they're no match for the erosion that's creeping closer to their foundations. The edge of the bluff has moved back towards the road that is behind the houses in a lot of the places, a hundred feet of the lot has now collapsed. And so what used to be a 150 foot lot is now a 50 foot or even in some cases less. Posner and his neighbors aren't just sitting back and waiting for the waves to carry their property out to sea. Where do you make a stand and how do you make a stand? in order to protect what we've built and protect our uh, civilization. After trying a few different ways of shoring up the bluff over the years, with limited success, Posner and his deep-pocketed neighbors decided in 2013 to try something on a much larger scale. From the modest cottage she rents at Sconset, Marianne Kelly has watched this latest project unfold. I know they were trying to do it from the from the base of the bluff, which is where they were doing um, the jute, uh, filling the jute sand bags. I call them sand burritos. They're actually called geotubes, and indeed, they do look a bit like giant burritos. 200 feet long, 7.5 feet tall, and 20 feet wide, the geotubes line the bluff for 1,000 feet and are stacked at an angle, four high. 
Marianne Kelly invites me to her front row seat view from the edge of her backyard, the very edge, just 17 feet from her house. Yeah, does this scare you? Well, it, it does feel like on the edge. Because some people can't, they can't go very close. I'm used to it now. From Kelly's backyard, I can't actually see the geotubes themselves. They're covered with sand to return the engineered bluff to a state as close to natural as possible. Far below, the waves crash onto a narrow beach. The geotubes that defy the force of those waves are designed to stay firmly put. But the sand that covers them is dynamic. Again, Peter Brace. Waves that are breaking on the shore are taking sand into the water, and a current carries the sand, the sediments, along the shore in one direction or another. Nantucket itself, it's, it is kind of shaped like a horseshoe or, or maybe like a boomerang. Or a pork chop. Or a pork chop. That's a great way of putting it. In fact, perhaps like your dinner, the island came straight out of a gigantic freezer, a massive ice sheet that covered much of North America 25,000 years ago. And the Laurentide ice sheet covered all of Canada at one time and then covered the top northern one-third of the U.S. almost out to the west coast. And Brace says this gargantuan block of ice was a powerful geologic force that shaped the land as it moved. You have to kind of look around you and see what you see here. It didn't exist. It didn't exist yet. It was just, it was the coastal plain, and the material got pushed here. What got pushed there was a lot of sand. And Emily Molden says for thousands of years, it's been in motion, driven by the forces that the geotubes are designed to resist. And that sand doesn't just disappear. It's going somewhere. It has a destination. So it's serving as a sediment source to other beaches, to other sandbars, other shoals. Molden's the resource ecologist for the Nantucket Land Council, a land trust and watchdog group. We are especially concerned about the geotubes constructed in Sconset because that's really a ground zero for erosion on the island. By preventing that sediment from eroding out of the bluff, you're starving those down gradient areas and systems from sand that they would naturally be receiving. That's one reason why the geotubes must be covered with sand at all times, so that nature still has something to work with. Josh Posner again. We add on top of our geotubes the amount of sand that historically has washed away in the natural erosion process. And so the system is covered with sand almost all of the time. But only almost all the time, because in the fiercest storms like powerful nor'easters, the sand covering the geotubes gets washed away. That happened just this January, when a massive nor'easter brought record high tides and flooding to Nantucket and the rest of New England. So after such a storm, the Sconset Beach Preservation Fund brings in the dump trucks, carting material from sand pits elsewhere on the island. That effort, like the geotubes, is funded by the homeowners at Sconset Bluff. Emily Molden says it's good that sand covers the geotubes most of the time, but she doubts it can last. That sand is becoming more and more expensive. And the greater the extent of a structure like the geotubes, the more sand is necessary. Now, I think that you're looking at a structure that has a pretty long lifespan probably decades. So it's just hard to say going forward whether that interest and funding will continue. 
Recovering the geotubes might need to happen even more frequently in the near future, as climate change brings rising seas and nastier storms. Since Nantucket is a ways offshore, storms are already quite fierce in the wintertime. Unlike many of her neighbors who only summer on Nantucket, Marianne Kelly lives in her small cottage year-round. I've been here in the winter and I've been through a lot of the storms and I've seen, you know, glass fall off our shelves. I've, our house shakes, you know, in the heavy winds. We get over 100 miles an hour here. I always joke around that I'd bungee cord myself to the nearest telephone pole in, in the storm, but um, in really big storms, I don't stay here. Some of her neighbors joke about the situation, too. Houses here have names like House of Cards and Slip Slide in Away. Down the road from Kelly, neighbor Loretta Yoder's backyard is really slip sliding away, often without warning. I went for a walk on a sunny day like this, and when I came back, a chunk, a one or two foot chunk from the edge had fallen down. Usually, nature sculpts more gradually, and Yoder has spent years observing this slow process. The bluff wants to find what they call its comfort angle of repose, which is an angle where uh, plants and dirt can hold on. With a bluff, with a dirt bluff that's not planted, you're going to always have some attrition. The wind takes it away, the rain makes little rivers, and if the waves come in and eats away at the toe, that goes back and then the top dribbles down to match that. After that chunk of earth fell away from her backyard, Yoder and her partner decided to move their house 34 feet back from the edge. It was getting to the point where it just felt like if we wanted to stay in a place and that it was secure, we, we needed to do it. But at some point, you just run out of room. And Yoder's part of the bluff isn't shielded by geotubes. The Sconset Beach Preservation Fund wants to change that. Josh Posner took the first step in January 2018 by submitting a proposal to expand the geotubes from the current 1,000 feet to nearly 4,000. He says it's not just an engineering challenge, it's also a moral issue. You know, our job as people is to use common sense and judgment about what makes sense and what doesn't, and where it makes sense and where it doesn't. So I know there's people who feel that uh, the only responsible thing to do in our situation is to abandon our homes and let erosion take its natural course. Um, I don't happen to agree with that. That choice about whether to engineer solutions to erosion and sea level rise or to retreat now faces coastal communities everywhere. Sea levels are predicted to rise two to seven feet in this century. And remember, this island is nothing more than loose, sandy material. No match for powerful waves and rising seas, says Nantucket ecologist Peter Brace. We're right where it's going to happen. We're going to go underwater before a lot of the coastline. In the meantime, Loretta Yoder keeps a close eye on the bluff edge in her backyard. We put a little log up on the edge, and we wait and see how long it takes for that little five-inch piece of wood to not have any support under it and fall down. And what works or doesn't work to hold back the sea on this tiny island may hold valuable lessons for coastal communities everywhere.
In the meantime, the sea that sculpted Nantucket over thousands of years continues to push and pull sand, shaping the shore and the lives of the people on this little pork chop of an island. And Jamie, I had a lot of help with this story. I owe thanks to Living on Earth's Matt Hoish and Rebecca Redelmeyer. Yeah, our whole team was on Nantucket. We had a great time, and next week, I'll be reporting on its crab populations. Coming up, the search for the elusive ghost particle, the neutrino. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jamie Kaiser. And I'm Jenny Doring. We're in for Steve Kerwood. Ever since Galileo turned his telescope towards the heavens four centuries ago, these finely tuned instruments have produced breathtaking images of planets and other galaxies. But one of the most exciting new telescopes doesn't look at anything at all in the traditional sense. The IceCube Neutrino Observatory is made up of thousands of light detectors buried in a cubic kilometer of diamond-clear ice at the South Pole. It's searching for neutrinos, tiny, almost massless subatomic particles that can pass through a light year of lead without slowing down. And perhaps they can even shed light on how our universe formed after the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. The telescope's creation story is also an epic tale that writer Mark Bowen captures in his book, The Telescope in the Ice. He spoke with Living on Earth host Steve Kerwood. So Ice Cube is designed to detect neutrinos, sometimes called ghost particles. So in layman's terms, what exactly is a neutrino? It is an elementary particle. That means I don't think it can be broken up into anything else. It's a very basic constituent of matter, and it's really odd and very hard to detect. It was, interestingly, one of the first elementary particles to be discovered, the only ones that were known in 1930 when Wolfgang Pauli had this incredible feat of uh, kind of insight and intuition, were the proton, the photon, and the electron. And The strange thing about the neutrino is that even now, nobody understands it very well, and it's one of the forefronts of particle physics because it just is this really weird particle. Why is science so fascinated with the neutrino? What is it that we're trying to understand, do you think? For two reasons. First of all, it will help explore the universe, explain the behavior of these incredibly strange things that are being discovered far off in outer space, We have now entered this era called multi-messenger astronomy. We saw this merging neutron star event, which resulted in a gravitational wave, and it was also seen with light. The neutrino would be yet a third messenger besides light and gravitational waves with which we can look at these exotic things like merging neutron stars or blazars, these incredibly bright galaxies off in the cosmos and things of that sort. So it's an astrophysical tool, and the neutrino has so far revealed the only physics beyond the standard model of particle physics. So back in the 1970s, people like Steven Weinberg, Sheldon Glashow, Abdus Salam put together something called the standard model, which explains by now all the known elementary particles. The last one that was discovered was the Higgs boson to great fanfare in 2012. Well, It's getting a little bit scary now because 
the standard model works so well that it's beginning to feel like a straitjacket. It seems like people have discovered everything they, that they can discover, and scientists don't like that. They like to discover new things. But the neutrino has actually revealed some physics beyond the standard model. The standard model says that it should not weigh anything, and an experiment very much like Ice Cube showed in 1997 that neutrinos have mass. So right now, there are probably a billion or more dollars worth of uh, research efforts aimed at trying to explore the neutrino to see if they can uncover new physics that might lead to, oh, just new beauty in the universe, really. I mean, basic science is exploration at its heart. Talk to me about the basic design of the ice cube and how on earth it's supposed to be able to detect these tiny particles that are, they have mass, but barely, apparently. The key to detecting one, at least in this case, is to monitor some huge volume of some clear material and watch for an interaction of the neutrino with a neutrino with that material. What happens is when a neutrino interacts with either a proton or a neutron, something in the nucleus of any atom at all or molecule, it disappears and knocks out a particle that gives off light that can be seen. So you don't actually look at the neutrino itself. You look at the product of the neutrino's demise. And that particle is knocked out just like as if you hit a billiard ball head-on with a cue ball. It gets knocked out of that nucleus going in pretty much exactly the same direction as the neutrino is going in. A neutrino can produce three kinds of particles, but the basic one, the workhorse, is called a muon, which is just like an electron, but it happens to weigh more and it has some other slight differences. The muon will speed through the ice, or you can use water, or you can use air. It has to be clear because you have to see the light that it's giving off. It's actually going faster than light can travel in that medium. It's not breaking Einstein's postulate of special relativity that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. It's traveling about the speed of light, but light itself would go slower because that medium has an index of refraction. So therefore, what happens is it drags a cone of light behind it because the light can't keep up with it. It's just like a boat on a lake. The reason that the, the waves come off at an angle behind the boat is that the waves can't go as fast as the boat. And that's exactly what's happening, except it's three-dimensional. So this thing is zooming through the ice, and it's dragging this cone of, of light behind it. And what the ice cube scientists have done is drilled deep, deep holes, a mile and a half or a mile and three quarters deep, in the incredibly clear ice at the South Pole, and dropped into them these strings of pearls, these basketball-sized light detectors. And they've created this three-dimensional grid of light detectors in the ice. And since that muon is traveling in the same direction as the neutrino was, you have a telescope. You can see where that neutrino came from. You can point back and see what object might have created that neutrino. So, Mark, if you just need a clear medium, why not use water? Why not use air? Why go to the South Pole and drill a mile and a half in the ice? And, you know, that's not exactly the easiest place to work, the South Pole. Yes, very good question. As it turns out, amazingly, the South Pole is a very easy place to work compared to the ocean because you don't have waves, because you can walk on your experiment, because you don't have to deal with ocean engineering. 
And in fact, the first valiant and pioneering attempt to do this was off the uh, coast of the Big Island of Hawaii. They tried for something like 14 years and failed because largely of the difficulties of deploying these same sorts of strings of detectors on the ocean floor. And so it turns out to be cheaper. They tried this project in Hawaii. They had been going for something like 10 years or 11 years by the time the project that is now Ice Cube, it was then known as AMANDA, the Antarctic Muon and Neutrino Detector Array. They began trying to deploy strings in the ice in 1991, and they actually succeeded in having a semi-working instrument by 1993 in like two or three years. Whereas the Hawaiian project, even after 11 years, hadn't deployed a string on the bottom of the ocean. And tell me why the atmosphere isn't a great place to try to detect these neutrinos from out of space. So both Ice Cube and this Hawaiian attempt, which was called Dumond, the Deep Underwater Muon and Neutrino Detector, are buried like a mile deep in the water or the ice. The reason is that you use that overburden, what's above the instruments, as a shield. Because right now, Steve, you and I have zillions of cosmic ray particles zipping through our bodies and into the Earth. Ice cube is buried more than a mile deep in the ice in order to block or attempt to block those particles. Some of them still punch through all the way down a mile deep. So the instrument is actually designed to look the other way. If you're standing on the South Pole, the instrument looks down. It's looking for muons coming up from what would be the northern sky. It is looking for neutrinos that have made it all the way through the Earth and then happen to interact with the ice right near the detector or even the bedrock below it and set a, a muon zooming through the detector. So Ice Cube and its predecessor, Amanda, that Antarctic muon and neutrino detector array that you described, required actually drilling holes hundreds and, well, thousands of meters deep into Antarctica's ice. How on earth did the master driller, I think his name is Bruce Cosey, and his team accomplished this in such a hostile environment? Uh, Bruce was capable of dealing with hostile environments. <laughs> I tell the story about when they first met him because they did a test hole in Greenland back in 1990 or something like that. Bruce would sleep outside in an unheated tent on the summit of Greenland, 10,000 feet high. You had this kind of intuitive, almost shamanistic knowledge of ice that Bruce Cosey had from decades of drilling ice cores and doing hot water drilling, which is what Ice Cube uses. And basically, they just stuck their nose into it, made a bunch of mistakes, and learned as they went along. They also had to deal with whether they had enough funding and enough support. So sometimes they had to compromise on the drill just because they couldn't get enough money to build the one they really wanted to build. And, you know, the first drill they tried actually got stuck in the ice. So then they go back two years later and they have a successful drilling season. And then they slowly work themselves down deeper and deeper into the ice. And the first time they got really deep into the ice, I think it took 12,000 gallons of fuel and it probably took them five days or a week to drill the hole. And by the time they were drilling the 86 holes they needed to drill for Ice Cube, I think they could drill a hole in something like 24 hours, and they used only something like 3,000 gallons worth of fuel. So, you know, over time, you just learn and you just hone it, and it's a real team effort. Talk to me about the moment that somebody actually 
saw one of these uh, neutrinos from outer space, not locally produced by cosmic rays dancing around in our atmosphere. Talk to me about that moment and, and what that was like. That was a very interesting moment. First of all, I think it happened in 2011. So they'd been working on this for 14 years at that point, since it began in 1987, the experiment. And it was a Japanese woman by the name of Aya Isihara at the University of Chiba in Japan. She'd been working on Ice Cube for a long time, several years. So she was looking for a very high-energy kind of neutrino that comes from very high-energy cosmic rays bouncing off the cosmic microwave background. They're thousands of times more energetic than any particle that could be created at the Large Hadron Collider. Of course, she was looking down into the Earth. She was looking at the northern sky. What happened was two incredibly high-energy neutrinos snuck past the filters she was using to find the particles she was looking for. And they came from the southern sky. So it was a total surprise. It was a mistake. Her uh, filters weren't good enough. And when they looked closely at those two neutrinos, they realized that they had to be coming from outer space. They named them Bert and Ernie after the two Muppet <laughs> characters. It was a graduate student in Wisconsin who did that because, you know, they had some absurdly long number attached to them because each event has, you know, a number attached to it. And they, were, they just studied those things up the wazoo. You know, you had 200 physicists going crazy about what these things were. So, as with so many great things in science and in physics, they had been working for, you know, 14 years looking at the northern sky, and the first neutrinos that they detected from outer space snuck in from behind their telescope <laughs> and came from the <laughs> southern sky. And so then they totally reoriented themselves and started looking at these things, and they've since found dozens and dozens more. And that was really the experiment that showed that uh, they now de can detect unequivocally neutrinos coming not from our atmosphere, which is kind of like the background light created by cities and makes it hard to see stars. We have the same problem with neutrinos, but from the cosmos somewhere. And Aya says, you know, it was like the greatest experience of her life. This is what physicists and scientists live for discovering new things, looking at how the universe works, brings us out of ourselves and makes our minds bigger somehow. The thrill of the chase and then suddenly having this surprise which just blows your mind. Mark Bowen's PhD is in physics, but he's now a writer and his new book is called The Telescope in the Ice, Inventing a New Astronomy at the South Pole. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. are among the most intelligent and talkative of marine mammals. And when they're young, like us, they love to play. In Big Sur, our explorer-in-residence, Mark Seth Lender, watched with a twinge of envy as young sea lions cavorted in the surf at an inaccessible cove hundreds of feet below the Pacific Coast Highway. The sea breaks the block of the land, carving the cliff into the shape of two cupped hands, filled with the tide and emptied with the tide. And on the boulders, the size of houses left behind young sea lions by the score. 
They have come to seek the opposite of shelter, a haul-out washed by the surf. They are thrown helter-skelter by waves churning above the swell, clamber up again, thrown off again. They swirl and swim in the eddies, avoiding the respite of the narrow shore until pleasure tires them out. Forty stories below the edge they bark, laying down their playground claim. Forty stories below the edge, the sea speaks for itself, calling out its distant name. And as the ear is drawn, the eye is led there also. The western sun colors young sea lions to golden brown, gleaming, the water streaming from their fur. They are like live brown stones. And the green deep of the sea breaks white, crashing over them. All this as it has been since the ice was beaten back 10,000 years before. For sea lions, for all its turbulence, this place was a safe redoubt, unapproachable by sea or land, by men carrying pointed stones. And the only thing to fear was of the sea itself and in it, great white shark, orca, an error in timing and the splintering of bones. Tolerable risks in the everyday life of every natural thing. And you'll find Mark Seth Lander's photos of these sea lions at our website, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Noble Ingram, Hannah Loss, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Ainsley O'Neill, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade and Jake Rigo. Allison Lyris-Jean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Jenny Doring. And I'm Jamie Kaiser. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy, from Carl and Judy Fehrenbach of Boston, Massachusetts, and from Solar City, America's solar power provider. Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.